Morning, New Hope Church. Glad that you're here, whether you're with us virtually or in person. I'm going to invite you to go in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, if you would do that this morning. Who's up for forgetting about COVID for 40 minutes? Right? Would that be good? Okay. I'm going to give you a reason to send up a silent cheer to God this morning, and you're going to find it in the midst of this parable. And and I hope, as amidst, in the midst of this parable, and as a result of working through it, you, you don't think about politics, you don't think about COVID, you don't think about anything else going on in your life other than the reality of what Jesus has done for you. And if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, perhaps you haven't drawn yourself into, been drawn into that relationship yet, the reality of what Jesus can do for you is going to come powerfully out of this parable this morning. So Matthew chapter 22, I want to pray with you before we dive into it, and I'm going to ask you to join me in that. Would you pray together with me? Father, we, we join our hearts together, both virtually and in person, it doesn't matter where we're at, you hear us. We're, we're bound together in this commonness of love that you have for us, and we return back to you, even though we, we don't do it well, Father. We pray that you would receive what we're about to do as an offering of our attention span, an offering of our, our time, that we're sacrificing this period to know more about you, who we are before you, how you see us. God, I pray that in the midst of what we're working through, you would remind us of all these things. You are indeed the God who will call us out into deeper waters and we could ever go on our own. And in the midst of it, you not only preserve us, you grow us. So we turn our attention now to what you caused Matthew to write down, the, the, the day in the life of Jesus just before crucifixion when you wanted to show us exactly what you wanted us to understand. Make it clear, Father. I pray for that. I pray for that for the sake of your people in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. So it's the final week in the life of Jesus. It's a Wednesday. He's telling this story in a setting in the temple complex. On Friday, he'll be crucified. A couple days earlier, he had cleansed the temple. He chased out the money changers. And people began challenging his authority when he came back into the building, wanted to know by what authority he was doing the things that he was doing. And he began telling a series of parables, as you saw over the last few times that we've been together in the midst of these parables. After the parable that we looked at last week, the parable of the vineyard, those who were there among him finally started realizing he was talking about them. In that setting, in the temple complex, were the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests of Israel. In other words, the nation's leaders, both political and religious leaders. And they're hearing these things that he's saying, and they begin assembling the pieces, realizing these parables are about us. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 21, 45. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And one verse later in verse chapter 21, verse 46, it says, they, as a result of that, sought to seize him. I thought, okay, this is our moment. We've got to remove him. We can't have him telling people these things. But they feared the people. It says that when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they, meaning the people, considered him to be a prophet. So it's clear the nation's leaders get it. They understand they're the focus of what he's been talking about up to this point. And they not only understand that he's been speaking about them, 
This one that we're about to look at this morning really pushes them over the edge. And if you allow your eyes in chapter 22 to drift down to verse 15, you see that they actually, as a result of what you're about to look at, decided we got to trap him somehow. We've got to trap him. And they began strategizing and laying a plan. They would be more than happy to take him out on Wednesday, the day that we're in. But that wasn't God's plan. They would like to remove him, but they fear the people, and so they can't do it. They'd like him to be gone before Passover. For three years now, Jesus has been bringing the gospel message of the kingdom of God to the nation of Israel. But at the very end, only a handful are loyal and are true to him. There's masses that receive him. The masses really, really like him. And make no mistake, by the power of his person and the overwhelming evidence of the miracles, they have been astoundingly impressed with who Jesus is. And the populace, they really want him to be their king. They would love it if he would lead the nation. But they want him as a king of their agenda, not God's agenda. So this widespread popularity causes Jesus to be very trendy. If it was modern day, our era 2021, he'd be trending on Twitter. He'd be all over the place. It's a very trendy acceptance of him. But what you discover as you read through the stories is it's really superficial. Jesus knows that they're like the waves of the sea. They're just driven back and forth, sloshing around with the wind. Therefore, as he continues to teach in the temple, It's not just the nation's leaders that he's speaking to. He's speaking also to the general population because they too are going back and forth. They come to the realization that he has no intention whatsoever of freeing them from Rome. And as they realize that, the applause begins to fade. Less enthusiastic. And by Friday with the crucifixion, they don't want any part of him. Today, we speak of a cancel culture. We think it originated with our generation. It did not. These are the forerunners of the cancel culture. They want to cancel Jesus by Friday, and they intend to do anything they can to cancel him from their midst. And they quickly arrive at the opinion that he's not going down the same track that they're going down. That's the setting for Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus breaks out another parable. Here it goes, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, because most of Israel, most of the Israelites living in the nation at that time believed that the kingdom of God was exclusively theirs, they understand that Jesus is speaking about them. We need to understand the way that it's being used by Jesus. If you're a listener in the first century and you're sitting in the temple complex and you hear him use the phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, they're one and the same, they believe exclusively that's the realm that belongs to them. They're the chosen people so that that's their place. So they immediately understand he's directing this parable to them. So let's bear down on this phrase that Jesus uses, kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' day, most understood the phrase kingdom of heaven as, like I said earlier, synonymous with the kingdom of God. We would use it today that way. It'd be interchangeable. Therefore, the phrase kingdom is representing God's sovereign rule. His sovereign rule over everything that God rules over, over his realm, 
That's what that's speaking of. But the kingdom is not restricted to any time era. It's not as though it was something specific to the ages past or something that's going to be in the age of the future. In a big picture way, this is the way I want you to understand the kingdom. We'll put it on the screen for you because there's a connection between reading and hearing something. Look at it this way. The kingdom of God is this, in a big picture. It's a continuing, ongoing sphere of all of God's rule. That's the big picture. That's the way they would have understood this. But below that, if you're going to dig subterranean a little bit, in the way that Jesus is using it here, it also represents the community of the redeemed of God. In other words, it's you. It applies to those who are loyal to God, those who are actually under the lordship of Jesus in a personal way. So that's why he begins talking about the kingdom of heaven. Look very closely with me at verse 2 again. You'll see it on the screen. The kingdom of heaven, this big sphere of God's rule, and those who are within it may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast. Now, in the ancient world, a wedding feast is part and parcel to a wedding event. You couldn't just show up for the reception and go to the banquet and not go to the event itself. The two are combined. And we put a lot of work today into preparations for wedding. We, we spend a lot of money on weddings. But in this period of time, if you think that your wedding takes a lot of planning and takes a lot of money, understand this. A first century wedding commonly lasted an entire week. And I mean, you're feeding your guests for an entire week. You have people staying in your home for an entire week. That's just for the commoners. And if you were going to a commoner's wedding, you would expect to stay in the home of the father of the groom or the father of the bride, and they would do whatever they had to do to be very extravagant towards taking care of you. But this is a royal wedding that Jesus is talking about. And a royal wedding often lasted for multiple weeks. And instead of being invited into the home of the groom or the home of the bride, you were invited to stay in the palace. And there is a place where the king could provide whatever he wanted to. He could be as extravagant as he wanted to. So Jesus is describing here for them the most elaborate celebration imaginable, a king throwing a feast for all the invited guests. Verse 3, and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And here's something you don't expect. And they were unwilling to come. So the preparations are complete, and everyone who had been invited said no. They were summoned, but they said, we're not interested. Now, you, if you have your Bible open this morning, whether you're at home or here in person, you might want to circle that phrase, had been, because it's indicating very specifically these are people who had foreknowledge of this event. It's not as though it was sprung on them within 24 or 48 hours or even 96 hours. Weddings were prepared months and months and months in advance, especially royal weddings. So these people had been invited, past tense, they knew that it was coming, yet Jesus says they're unwilling to come. So they already know about the event, and when you're invited to the king's wedding, it's expected you will attend. After all, who would dare to refuse the king to be the guest at the king's ceremony that's the highest level you could possibly hope to attain to. The, the people that would be there would be the people you'd want to be with. And, and when your invitation was delivered to you, gold-encrusted, 
you'd be certainly holding it out to your social circle saying, look what I got in the mail today. I'm going to the king's wedding. That would be something you'd want to brag about. So it's not as though they didn't know about this and they were caught by surprise. But verse 3 says, you see this on the screen, just five words, they were unwilling to come. So to Jesus' listeners in the temple that day, they've just heard something that is absolutely unthinkable. This is ludicrous. Who would turn down the king? Who would dare do that? It's preposterous. But as unthinkable as that type of reaction is, that's precisely the point Jesus is driving at. It's the central part of the parable that He's telling here. Now, actually attending the wedding, that certainly would rise way above just receiving the invitation. Receiving the invitation is one thing. You could boast to your social circle saying, guess what I'm doing? But actually attending, that would mean the finest foods, the, the best meats, the, the best wines you could imagine, and being able to socialize with the, the who's who of society. It's the event of all events. And in an honor-shame culture, an invitation from your own king not only brought you honor, it brought you obligation. In an honor-shame society, you would never shame your king by saying, I'm not coming. It's an offense of the highest magnitude imaginable to reject a king. Now, we talked in the last few weeks a lot about the patience of God and the long-suffering of God. Look with me where Jesus goes in verse 4. Maybe just circle the word again. Again. Again, it says. Again, He sent out other slaves saying, Tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Now, I don't know about you, but the response of the king is stunning. That he would exhibit that kind of patience? See, monarchs are not known for their humility, and they're certainly not known for their patience, especially after an insult like that. What does this king do? He sends out the invitation again. He says, go back. Tell them what's on the menu. Tell them about the work that I've gone to. The dinner is hot. The steam is rising from the table. You can hear the sizzling in the kitchen. It's ready for you. Remind the guest of all of our preparations. Now, I have friends who like to do cooking with a grill. Uh, my own son who lives in South Carolina, Adam, loves to grill. I have friends here in the church who love to grill. I have friends who grill briskets. And I know those things take a long time. I mean, you start, you don't just put it on and a half hour later eat. That's like a 24-hour process. I actually know individuals who will stay up all night long babysitting a piece of brisket on the grill. I don't know that I would give up sleep for a piece of meat, but I'm more than happy to eat it if you want to cook it for me. Right? So that's a lot of dedication, but this king is saying, not only have we cooked it, we fattened our prize bowl. Months in advance, they had to begin the preparations to get the cows ready and to get the ox ready and to get the sheep ready. Go tell them what's on the menu. We've done all this preparation. Tell them, come to the wedding feast now. And what we discover is this is nothing other than an intentional snubbing of the king. 
an intentional insult. When you see Jesus' next verse in verse 5, let me give you just a, a little thought here. We're going to do a little back and forth between the first century and our present day. Just watch what he says, verse 5. But they paid no attention and went on their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. So we got two groups going on here. The first group is just completely disregarding the invitation. They have no interest in it whatsoever, except this time, the refusal is even more crass. They just act like the messenger hasn't even spoken. There's no response. If you look in your notes this morning, you'll see one Greek word. It's going to come up on the screen for you. This one Greek word is the phrase that Jesus is using when He says they paid no attention. Amelio. And it means to make light of, to have no regard for whatsoever. What Jesus is doing is He's citing the typical shallow response of people who have no interest in the things of God. It's like, yeah, thanks, i got better things to do. I'm going to go to my farm, I'm going to take care of my business. And does not society find itself doing that very thing? They continue to do the things they would normally do, looking after their own interests, pursuing their own agenda, chasing after their farms, after their businesses. So preoccupied with a personal agenda that the king's invitation is completely ignored. Well, I don't care if you live in the first century or if you live in 2021. That's common to human nature. Willing to forfeit the king's presence in exchange for temporal, self-serving activities as opposed to being with the king. Now, that's the first group. The second group is far worse. They're, they're brutal towards the king's messengers. They're worse than the indifferent crowd. This is astounding arrogance here. They seize the king's messengers and kill them. Now, check this. Rather than worrying about offending the king, they're offended at the king's persistence. Please come. Please come. Won't you come? Again and again, he invites them to come. Now, if you've got contempt for the king's messengers, what you're really revealing is a contempt for the king. Let me see if I can put that in our day and age. In other words, if you've received rejection in your life for the things of Jesus from people in your family, maybe your social circle or your job place, know this, it's not about you. It's about the king. It's not about you, it's about the king that you represent. The rejection is not about you personally, it's about the message that you bring. So killing his messengers is not just rebellion, it says in the most flagrant way possible, we want you dead, king, we want you out of our life. So let's zoom back in now into the first century, we've been talking about our world Jesus puts this in context for us by saying in this parable, as it relates to the first century, specifically the kingdom of heaven here, as we understand it, the king is God. And the invitations have gone out to the nation of Israel. At this point in history, they've already received multiple invitations from God. Won't you come? Won't you be part of this? But because it comes through Jesus, they don't want any part of it. And the messengers that have been sent to them throughout time have been the prophets and the teachers and those individuals who bring the message, and they've killed them. Now, let's zoom back out for just a little more perspective. 
the indifferent guests are those who are interested in the things here and now. They have no particular interest in the things of God. Not necessarily antagonistic against God, but just simply no time for God. But the second group, that group that's hostile to the message, well, throughout time, we've been told throughout the Bible, throughout history, those who are most aggressive against the truth are the sons of darkness. And Jesus said, just hang on, because in the last days, it's going to get a lot worse. Those individuals will hunt down those who are loyal to God, the messengers, and they will execute them. So let's zoom back in now to the first century for context. What's the point of the two callings? Why did he send out the double invitations? Well, what it illustrates for you and I is God's astounding mercy, God's astounding patience. If you believe God to be long-suffering, would you say amen? You know what that word means. The big $10 church word, but it, it just means God is incredibly gracious over and over and over again, calling out to people. And you see it in his willingness to repeatedly call Israel until finally that nation has to be dealt with and, and Jerusalem and the temple are utterly destroyed in 70 AD. I'm just getting ahead of myself a little bit. Go with me to verse 7. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Just like we saw last week in the parable of the vineyards, God's patience does have its limit. There's a point when God draws a line in the sand and says, no more. I'm not going to go there again, not one more time. Now, the king would have been justified in bringing his wrath the first time they ignored him and rejected him. But after all the repeated invitations, he's enraged. This is just like the time before the flood of Noah. You'll see this on the screen, Genesis chapter 6. God said, I am not going to contend with man forever. My spirit will only put up with this for so long. And then comes the end. So the king, in this verse 7, instructs his troops, go destroy their murderers, take out their city. And he's not speaking of just eliminating those who are responsible. He's talking about dealing with generations that might rise up against the king's purposes. And what we find here is prophecy within the parable because only a generation later, 70 A.D., Rome said, we're done dealing with Israel, and they swept in, and they wiped out, and they killed over a million people in Jerusalem alone, and they laid siege to the city. You read about it yourself. If you look in your notes this morning, I'm not going to get into it. It's too gory, but there's a big quote in there from Josephus. He's a historian that lived at that period of time. He was an eyewitness to the destruction of the temple. I included it in your notes so you can read about it yourself, so you can get some information on this. But General Titus laid siege, and he destroyed the city. I think that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 7. But let's not get off on that. Let's keep going with verse 8. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Now check that, because the unworthiness is not because they lacked anything. When you read that, you might say, well, worthy? How are they not worthy? Well, the invitation was never based on merit. It was never based on their abilities. But it was based on the king's gracious favor. The king decided who to send the invitation out to. So it's ironic that he would use this phrase, not worthy. Why are they not worthy? Not because of merit, but because they refused the invitation. The invitation wasn't based on worth. It was based on the king's grace. 
That which makes a person worthy of receiving God's offer is not human accomplishment. You need to hear that if you're new to church. That which makes a person worthy of being in God's presence is not because of human accomplishment. It's because of simply saying yes to the invitation. Do you need to hear that again? That which makes a person worthy of receiving God's offer is not human accomplishment. It's simply saying yes to the invitation. So these people were declared not worthy even though they're already the chosen people of God, the chosen nation. They're refusing to come through Jesus. And because they reject the Son, God rejects them for a window of time. They're temporarily cast off by the king. Keep going. Next verse, verse 9. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, New Hope, this is where you arrive in the midst of the parable. Hope you can see yourself here. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. So the feast is ready, but there's no one there to attend. The banquet hall is empty, even though the steam is coming up from the table. No one to attend unless a new group is brought in. So he says, go out to the main highways, go everywhere, find as many as you can, give them the offer, invite them in. Well, the main highways in those days, the central arteries that led outside of the city, it led out to the country, that's where the poorest of the poor lived. That's where the commoner would live. They couldn't live near the palace, too expensive for real estate. So they're outside the city. These are the last people who could expect to find themselves as a guest in a royal palace. Who would ever think they would be there? But that's absolutely a match for what Jesus said in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission. Let me remind you of that. Look with me on the screen. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Invite everybody in. I showed you last week in the midst of the parable we are in that Hosea said 800 years before Jesus was born, God says this, I will call those who are not my people, my people. You're my people. I will call those who are not my people. You're my people. You want to come and be part of my palace? Come on in. Verse 10, those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together. Pay very close attention to this. All they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Both evil and good might really strike you. So the messengers have been out to seek out those who are both morally evil and morally good. It's a representation of the church. This is what the church looks like today. Both groups that he's mentioning here are equally unworthy to be at the king's feast. Hear that again. Both groups, the evil and good, are equally unworthy to be at the king's feast. So you've got on one side those whose lives are a cesspool of mistakes from the past, and you've got those who are part of a respectable part in the community, and both are equally unworthy to be at the king's table. See, the original guest list had not been assembled because those individuals were superior, and neither are the new guests. Here's the context of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is relaying to His listeners, those who will really read this and understand this, He will accept those whom the establishment would reject. 
especially those in the nation of Israel who would say, I don't want those people at my guest table. But that's our God. If you agree with this, I want you to say amen. He brings hope to the hopeless, right? He's the one who would reach out. So he extends his call both to the evil and to the good. Why? Because both equally need a savior. Can, can you see yourself in the story now? You begin looking for yourself. Everybody looks for themselves in a story. We do that automatically. Do you find yourself in the midst of this story? Paul wrote about you. Paul said in Corinthians, he said, and such were some of you. He put together a big laundry list of individuals who were, let's say, living not an ideal life. He said, you used to be that way too. He's writing to the church, and such were some of you, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. But you were washed, you were sanctified. Of course, those who accept the invitation don't stay evil. The point is this, Jesus welcomes others whom others would never welcome. He welcomes everyone, all the people whom others would never include. So this is coming into the end of this parable now, and we need to ask ourselves a question about this worthiness issue. What does it take to be worthy? How can I be worthy to go into the king's presence? Well, the same thing that made a person worthy in the first century is the same thing that's true today. There first has to be a willingness to hear the invitation. And once you hear the invitation, you've got to be willing to receive the invitation. And once you receive the invitation, you've got to be willing to act on the invitation by putting faith in Jesus in this case. Thereby, a person receives the righteousness of God. Hebrews goes on to say, without that, no one's going to see the kingdom of God. Without that righteousness. Now, let me, let me clarify for you what you've just heard. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you're a follower of the King of Kings, everyone who accepts God's invitation through Jesus will be a dinner guest at his eternal banquet. Right? That trumps COVID. That goes over the top of all political issues. That eradicates anything that's gone on cruddy in your life in the last five years or will go on in the next year. One day you get to sit at the eternal banquet table of the King of Kings because of Jesus. Now, that parable could end right there. And we could pick up our car keys and leave and you could turn off your TV at home and say, okay, I'm reminded again, I get to go to a banquet one day. Yay me! But we'd be missing a com completely critical component. And Jesus wants us to not miss it. So he ends this way, verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And to be honest with you, church, there is an undeniable tension that arrives at this point in the story, and you have to acknowledge it. What, what Jesus conveys is absolutely shocking for people who are not necessarily part of a church world or didn't grow up in church, because this presents an aspect that's unknown to many people. I dare say most of the population of planet Earth. Check what's going on. The king arrives. He comes into the banquet hall. He's going to make his presence known. He walks before his guest. He's moving from table to table. Thanks for coming. Glad you're here. 
goes to this individual and finds someone who's not dressed appropriately. Now, mind you, the king has made zero restrictions on who's invited. He instructed his servants to go out to the entire region, invite anyone who would want to respond. Now, if a king brings in people off the street, all sorts of people into the palace, it's very probable that he's going to have to make wedding clothes available to them because they're coming in off the street. And if you've been taken off the streets, you likely have no appropriate clothing for that occasion. How many times I've stood at home in my own closet with my wife saying to me, I have nothing to wear. And I'm looking at a closet full of clothing. Sorry to call you out, honey. And yet what she really means is for the occasion we're going to, she doesn't feel she has appropriate clothing. This is what's being described here. We got somebody going to a grand festival and they need the appropriate clothing. So if you've been taken off the streets, it's likely that you have no appropriate clothing for that occasion. And check this, that, that the other guests are there and they are accepted by the king means the king had to clothe them. They're dressed appropriately. They've got on what they need to have on. But here we have a person who has decided he doesn't need what the king provides. This is not a wedding crasher. It's not somebody just looking for free food and for good drink. It's not a party crasher. He was invited just like everybody else. He came invited, but he's not only improperly dressed, he stands out like a sore thumb. Everybody else fits the appropriate environment for where they're at, but he's in stark contrast to all the other dinner guests, so the king can go right up to him and said, what are you doing here? So this one is fully accountable, and the king is incredibly patient with him. And he gives him opportunity to justify himself by saying, friend, how did you happen to be here? You don't have the appropriate clothing on. Now, if you are before the king of all kings and you have good reason to be there, this is your chance to defend that reason. You better mention it now. But he says he's speechless. He's not even trying for some feeble excuse. As I study last day's things and I see that there's a great white throne in Revelation 20, I think Jesus is describing that very setting where individuals will stand before the king of the kings on the great white throne and people will be without excuse. You have no way to defend yourself before that king. To this point... This one standing before the king has presumed something. He's made an assumption. And his assumption is that he can come into the king on his own terms. So what we have here is a very proud individual. And he has arrogantly said, I don't need what you have. I'm good. I've got what I need. I'm all set. So he came believing that he could be there, dressed in his own clothing, not the clothing that the king provides. What's the clothing that the king has provided for you this morning? We're told that you have been dressed because of Jesus in a robe of righteousness. That when God sees you, if you're in Jesus, he sees that righteousness. 
that same robe that will cover you when you stand before the king. And it was given to you not of your own works, but because of what Jesus did, not works of righteousness, which we have done. You've got to have a robe of righteousness on. And without that, that clothing of God's, no one can be in the kingdom of God. Finish the story out, verse 13. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of the most misunderstood verses in all of the Bible, verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. That's a powerful, powerful image. I hope you find it sobering. Because without that robe that you just celebrated over, that you believe that you have on you because you're in Jesus, without that reality for which you would praise Jesus, you'd be just like this man, this one with no excuse, who is undressed and stark naked before the King of Kings without an excuse and is permanently expelled with no chance of returning. That's why Jesus went on to the degree of saying, bind him hand and foot. He's not getting back in. Have you noticed that Jesus does not ask his listeners at this point to make any comment whatsoever? What would they say? Up till now, when he tells parables, he invites feedback. He asks people to fill in the blanks. He asks questions of them. Not here. He's dealing with eternal judgment. And he's not looking for their input. He simply says with a sober statement, many are called... Few are chosen. So who's the many? Well, the whole earth. God's not willing that any would perish. Many are called. It classes this man right there with all the others who were at the wedding celebration. They all heard the invitation. They all had the opportunity to respond, meaning they all had opportunity because of the king's generosity. But Jesus sounds a warning right here. He said, those who hear the call must not think the call is equal to the response. In other words, just because you hear the invitation doesn't mean you responded to the invitation. There's got to be a response, and there's going to be fruit that comes out of your life to demonstrate. That was genuine. That was real. So he says, while many hear the call, few are chosen. Why? Because few respond. Few are chosen because few respond to that call. It's the same with some of the other parables that we looked at. So the king's invitation has gone out to the many, and as many as would respond, they could be there, all of the earth, but few of those who hear the call are willing, and many others attempt, they make this vain attempt to come on their own conditions. So we need to bear down and really end this the way that Jesus described it, the way he intended for us to get this with verse 11. He says, he saw a man there who was dressed in wedding clothes. Don't look for it on the screen. It's not going to pop up. Just hear what he said. He looked for a man and saw one there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And verse 13 goes on to say, throw that one into the outer darkness. Within that, we've been told that there's a condition for being in the palace. And the condition is that a person would be dressed in the way that God requires them to be dressed. For the one who's not, he's ejected from the king's presence. 
What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, look with me on the screen at Matthew 5, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Most people in that world would have looked at the Pharisees and the scribes and said, what? These guys are really religious. They know their Bible. How can they not get into the kingdom of heaven? There's this really gorgeous statement in the book of Isaiah, Old Testament prophet, if you haven't read it before, in chapter 61. Watch how Isaiah describes this very setting that we're talking about. Isaiah 61.10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And if you ever wanted to send up a cheer to God, this would be it. It'd be like, thank you. Isaiah is just echoing what we know as a New Testament reality. He has enveloped you, covered your innards and your outards. He's got all of you in a robe of righteousness. So the people who belong to God through Jesus Christ would say at this point, yay, that's fantastic. I don't care what COVID could do. I don't care about politics. I don't care about a marriage that's dissolving. I care about the reality of this eternal life. I get Jesus in the end. I get this eternal banquet. So we check out from reality for just a moment to check into a eternal reality. I get that. For a person who's new to church, they might be hearing this and saying, how do I get one of those robes? I want that. Here's the most amazing thing, and I said earlier that it's remarkable when we read something and we connect it with what we hear that it stays with us a long time. Let me have you read. Just take it and drink what I'm putting up on the screen for you. The wedding garment that God the Father demands, God the Son provides. The wedding garment that God demands for you, God the Son puts on your shoulders. That's what 2 Corinthians is talking about in chapter 5 when it says, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Because when you put your faith in Jesus, He dresses you in a robe of righteousness. You may not even see yourself that way this morning. You may feel like because of the things you did yesterday, you are the dirtiest person on planet earth. God says, I forgave you through Jesus. I forgave your past, your present, your future. So when God sees you, he sees that robe of righteousness. Because it's not about the things that you have done. It's about what he has done. And that robe stays with you for eternity. So God not only demands this robe, but he freely offers the very thing that he requires. How great is that? He not only demands it, he says, here, this thing that I'm demanding of you, here it is, it's free. But I assure you, if you're here today, you're watching from home, and you think that there's a day coming when you're just going to walk into that palace on your own terms, what I'm about to say, I say to you in love, but I'm going to say it in truth also. If that's what you're thinking, you're wrong. The authority of the Bible says you have to be dressed in the robe of righteousness that Jesus provides. There is salvation 
and no other name under heaven than Jesus Christ. So hear that in love. And hear that as an echo of what the New Testament writers said. Paul most clearly said that exact same thing in 2 Corinthians 5. I just showed you verse 21. Let me show you the full component of it as we wrap this up. We beg you. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you, Lord. All right? Thank you, Lord, for that reality. If you personally need to know more about that, how do I get that robe? I'm, I'm here after the service. I'd be honored to talk with you. Explain that more fully to you, how Jesus died to wipe away your sins so that you can step into eternity one day. Don't hesitate to come and talk with me or any other one of the pastors that are here on staff. We'd be honored to talk with you about these things. But if you're a believer in Jesus already this morning and you've already got that robe of righteousness on you, you, you should walk out of here with a new skip in your step. A little more bounce. I get that. That robe is on me because of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for every single soul who is dialed into this, every single soul virtually and in person who are bound together in the Spirit. We're told that we're bound together in the commonness of love. And that love that emanates from you is what binds us together. And so we can collectively praise you and thank you, especially in the ways that we get to do it through song with the worship services here. But Father, we can thank you internally right now, and we're just doing that. We're thanking you that we get to wear a robe. And it's not a robe that we earned. We thank you that you're putting that robe on us. You placed it, not because of what we did, not because of what we earned, but because of what Jesus did for that, so for us. And so for that reason, we praise you and thank you. Thank you, God the Father, for sending God the Son. Thank you that although our righteousness is as filthy rags, you put on us a pristine robe of righteousness. Father, I pray that those who belong to you, the saints of this church, who already know that they belong to you, that you would encourage them. You've equipped us. Send us out now with your encouragement, with your blessing. And God, for those who might not know you yet, I pray that you would wrap them with your loving arms, with the power of the Holy Spirit, and continue to draw individuals to yourself. Do that, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We plead for that. In Jesus' majestic name, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.